Chapter thirty eight of Somehow Good. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Chapter thirty eight of an expedition against a goody, and the walk back to Lobjoit's, and the walk back again to Eagledon's. How Fenwick took Vereker's confidence by storm. Of a collier that put to sea. Successful ambuscade of the octopus. Provisional equilibrium of Fenwick's mind. Why bother about Horace? Why not about Pickwick just as much? The kitten wasn't there. Certainly not. So it came about that during the remainder of that day and part of the next, Fenwick either made no further exploration of his past, or, if he did so, concealed his discoveries. For he not only kept silence with Rosalind, but even with Vereker was absolutely reserved, never alluding to their conversation of the morning. And the doctor accepted this reserve, and asked no questions. As for Rosalind, she was only too glad to catch at the support of the medical authority, and to abstain from question or suggestion, for the present, certainly, and, unless her silence, as might be, should seem to imply a motive on her part, to maintain it until her husband revived the subject by disclosing further recollections of the bygone time. Happily, Sally knew nothing about it. That her mother was convinced of, and Sally wasn't likely to know anything, for Vereker's professional discretion could be relied on, even if her suspicions were excited. And really, except that Fenwick seemed a little drowsy and reflective, and that Rosalind had a semitone of consolation in her manner towards him, there was nothing to excite suspicion. After the cows—this is an expression borrowed from Sally later in the afternoon— Conversation flagged through the rest of the walk home, except for regrets more than once expressed that it would be much too late for tea when we got in, and a passing word on the fact that at the seaside one got as greedy as some celebrated glutton, a Roman emperor perhaps, very few ideas were interchanged. But a little conversation was made out of the scarcity of a good deal, for the persistent optimism of Sally recognised that it was awfully jolly saying nothing on such a lovely evening. Slight fatigue, combined with the beauty of sky and sea and distant downland, the lengthening shadows of the wheat-sheaves, and the scarlet of poppies in the stubble, seemed good to justify contemplation and silence. It was an hour to caress in years to come, none the less that it was accepted as the mere routine of daily life in the short term of its existence. It was an hour that came to an end, when the party arrived at the hedge of the unripe sloes that had checked the onset of Albion Villas towards the new town, and passed through the turnstile Fenwick and Vereker had passed through in the morning. Then speech came back, and each did what all folk invariably do after a long spell of silence, revealed what they were being silent about, or seemed to be. Most likely Fenwick's contribution was only a blind, as his mind must have been full of many thoughts he wished to keep to himself. "'I wonder when Paganini's young woman's row with her mother's going to come off.' "'To-day or to-morrow?' "'I was wondering whether it would come off at all. "'I dare say she'll accept the inevitable. "'Thus, Rosalind, and for our part, "'we believed this also was not quite candid, "'in fact was really suggested by her husband's remark. "'But Sally's was a genuine disclosure, "'and really showed what her mind had been running on. "'I've been meditating a crusade,' she said, "'with remoteness from current topics in her voice.' 
and both her companions immediately made concessions to one that seemed to them genuine as compared with their own. "'Against whom, kitten?' said her mother, and Fenwick reinforced her with, "'Yes, who's the crusade to be against, Sarah?' "'Against the octopus.' And Sally says this with the most perfectly unconscious gravity, as though a crusade against an octopus was a very common occurrence in everyday life. The eyes of her companions twinkle a little interchange across her, unseen, but are careful to keep anything suggesting a smile out of their voices, as they imply for enlightenment. "'Because of poor Prosy,' Sally explains. "'You'll see now. She won't allow him to come round this evening. You see if she does.' She is so intent upon her subject-matter that they might almost have smiled aloud without detection, after all. "'When's it to come off, Sarah, the crusade?' "'I was thinking of going round this evening, if he doesn't turn up.' "'Suppose we all go,' Fenwick suggests, and Rosalind assents. The crusade may be considered organised. "'We'll give him till 8.45,' Sally says, forecasting strategy, "'and then if he doesn't come, we'll go.' 8.45 came but no doctor. So the crusade came off as arranged, with the result that the Christian forces, on arriving in the neighbourhood of Jerusalem, found that the octopus responsible for the personation of the Saracens had just gone to bed. It was an ill-advised crusade, because if the Christians had only had a little patience, the released prisoner would have looked round as soon as his janitor was asleep. As it turned out, no sooner were the visitors' voices audible than the octopus became alive to the pleasures of society, and renounced sleep in its favour. She would slip something on and come down, and did so. Her doing so was out of keeping with the leading idea of the performance, presenting the Paynim as an obliging race, but a meek and suffering one, though it never aired its grievances. These, however, were the chief subjects of the conversation during the visit, which, in spite of every failure in dramatic propriety, was always spoken of in days after as the crusade. It came to an end in due course, the Saracen host retiring to bed with benedictions. Vereker walked back with our friends to Mrs. Lobjoit's through the sweet night air, a considerate little shower of rain that came down while they were sympathetically engaged, had just washed clean. Vapour drifts that were wavering between earth and sky, and sacrificing their birthright of either cloudship or foghood, were accompanying a warm sea wind towards the north. Out beyond, and quite clear of all responsibility for them and theirs, was a flawless heaven with a stellar and planetary universe in it, pitiless and passionless eyes, perhaps, as Tennyson calls them, and strange fires, but in this case without power to burn and brand their nothingness into the visitors to St. Sennans, who laughed and talked and smoked and took no notice, and indeed, rather than otherwise, considered that Orion's belt and Aldebaran had been put there to make it a fine night for them to laugh and talk and smoke in. It was pleasant to Vereker, after his walk with Fenwick in the morning, to find the latter like his usual cheerful self again. The doctor had had rather a trying time with his goody mother, so that the day had been more one of tension than of peace, and it was a heavenly respite to him, from filial duties dutifully born, to walk home with the goddess of his paradise, the paradise that was so soon to come to an end, and send him to the release of his locum, Mr. Neckett. Never mind. The having such a time to look back to in the future was quite as much as one general practitioner with a duty to his mother could in reason expect. 
Was Dr. Conrad aware, we wonder, how much the philosophical resignation that made this attitude of thought possible was due to the absence of any other visible favoured applicant for Miss Sally, and the certainty that he would see her once or twice a week at least, after he had gone back to his prescriptions and his diary of cases? Probably he wasn't, and when, on arriving at Lobjoit's, Fenwick announced that he didn't want to go in yet, and would accompany the doctor back to Iggledon's and take a turn round, the only misgiving that could try for an insecure foothold in the mind now given up to the delirium it called Sally was one that Fenwick might have some new painful memory to tell. But he was soon at rest about this. Fenwick wasn't going to talk about himself very much the reverse, if one's own reverse is someone else. He was going to talk about the doctor into whose arm he slipped his own as soon as he had lighted his second cigar, for they had not walked quick from Iggledon's. "'Now, tell me about Sir Dioscorides Naylor and the epileptiform disorders.' "'Miss Sally's been telling you? No, she didn't. Sally did.' Both laughed. The doctor will make it Sally next time. That's understood. "'You told Sally, and she told me. What's the damage to be?' "'How much did Sally tell you?' The little formality comes easier to the doctor's shyness, as it figures this time quotation-wise. It is a repeat of Fenwick's use of it. "'Sally said three thousand. "'Yes, that's what I told her, but it's not official. He may want more. He may let me have it for three. Only I don't know why I should have it for less than anyone else.' "'Never you mind why. That's no concern of yours, my dear boy. What you've got to think of is yourself and Mrs. Vereker.' Dioscorides will take care of himself. Trust him. Yes, of course, I have to think of my mother. One can hear in the speaker's voice what may be either self-reproach for having neglected this aspect of the case, or very tolerant indictment of Fenwick for having mistakenly thought he had done so. What's a man thinking of? Of course you have, but I didn't mean your mother. She's a dear old lady. This came grudgingly. "'But I didn't mean her. I meant the Mrs. Vereker that's to come. "'Your wife, dear fellow, your wife!' "'The way the young man flushed up, hesitated, stammered, "'couldn't organise a sane word, amused Fenwick intensely. "'Of course he was, so to speak, quite at home, "'understood the position thoroughly, "'but he wasn't going to torment the doctor. "'He was only making it impossible for him to avoid confession for his own sake.' He did not wait for the stammering to take form, but continued. "'I mean the young lady you told Sally about. The young lady you are hesitating to propose to, because there'll be what you call complications in medicine. Complications about your mamma, to put it plainly. Oh, yes, of course, Sally told me all about it directly.' Vereker cannot resist a laugh, for all his embarrassment, a laugh which somehow had the image of Sally in it. "'She would, you know. Sally's the sort of party that that if she'd been Greek would have been the daughter of an Arcadian shepherdess and a thunderbolt. Of course she would. <laughs> I say, Fenwick, look here. Have another cigar, old man. No, I've smoked enough. That one's lasted all the time since we came out. Look here, what I want to say is, well, that I was a great fool, did wrong, in fact, to talk to Sally about that young lady. And to that young lady about Sally, Fenwick says quietly, for half a second, such alacrity has thought, Vereker takes his meaning wrong, thinks he really believes in the other young lady. Then it flashes on him, and he knows how his companion has been seeing through him all the while. 
But so lovable is Fenwick, and so much influence is there in the repose of his strength, that there is no resentment on Vereker's part that he should be thus seen through. He surrenders at discretion. "'I see you know,' he says helplessly. "'No, you love Sally. Of course I do. So does her mother. So does yours, for that matter. So does every one except herself. Why, even you yourself know it. She will never know it unless she hears it on the best authority. Your own, you know.' ought i to tell her i know i was all wrong about that humbug girl i cooked up to tell her about i altogether lost my head and i was a fool i can't see what end you proposed to yourself by doing it says fenwick a little maliciously if sally had recommended you to speak up because it was just possible the young lady might be pining for you all the time you couldn't have asked her her name and then said that's hers you're her like the fat boy and pickwick no I consider, my dear boy, that you didn't do yourself any good by that ingenious fiction. You know all the while you wouldn't have been sorry to think she understood you. I don't know that I didn't think she did. I really don't know what I did or didn't think. I quite lost my head over it. That's the truth. Highly proper. Quite consistent with human experience. It's the sort of job chaps always do lose their heads over. The question now is, what are we going to do next? which meant what was Vereker going to do next, and was understood by his hearer in that sense. He made no answer at the moment, and Fenwick was not going to press for one. A Newcastle collier had come in to deliver her cargo some days since, before the wind sprang up, and the coal-carts had been passing and repassing across the sands at low water, for there was a new moon somewhere in the sky when she came, as thin as a sickle, clinging tight round the business moon that sought the spring tides, a phantom sphere an intrepid star was daring to go close to. This brig had not been disappointing her backers, for wagers had been freely laid that she would drag her moorings in the wind and drift. Fenwick and Vereker stopped in their walk to lean on the wooden rail above the beach that skirted the two inclines, going either way, up which the wagons had been a couple of hours ago scrambling over the shingle against time, to land one more load yet while the ebb allowed it they could hear the yo-yo of the sail-hoisters at work on the big mainsail abaft, and wondered how on earth she was going to be got clear with so little seaway, and the wind dead in shore. But they were reassured by the ancient mariner with the striped shirt, whose mission in life seemed to be to stand about and enlighten landmines about sea-facts. "'The master of yonder craft had done that much afore, and he'd done it again.' Why, you'd known him from three-year-old, the striped shirt had, which settled the matter. Then presently the clink-clink of the windlass dragging at the anchor. They watched her in silence till, free of her moorings, anyone could have sworn she would be on shore to a certainty, but she wasn't. She seemed mysteriously to be able to manage for herself, and just as a berth for the night on the shingle appeared inevitable, leaned over to the wind and crept away from the land triumphant. Then, the show being over, as Fenwick and Vereker turned to look the lateness of the hour in the face and get home to bed, the latter answered the question of the former, as though he had but just asked it. "'Speak to Sally. I shall have to,' and then added with an awe-struck face and bated breath, "'But it's awful!' A moment after he was laughing at himself, as he said to his companion, referring to a very palpable fact. 
I don't wonder I made you laugh just now. They walked on without much said till they came to Iggledon's, when the doctor, seeing no light in the sitting-room, hoped his worthy mother had fulfilled a promise made when they came away, and gone to bed. It was then past eleven, but he was reckoning without his host. Fenwick said to him, as they stood on Iggledon's threshold and doormat respectively, presuming rashly, on imperfect information, to delay farewells, "'Now look here, Conrad, my dear boy. I like your name, Conrad. Don't you go and boil over to Sally to-morrow, nor next day. You'll only spoil the rest of your stay, maybe.' "'What? Well, what I mean is that nothing I say prejudices the kitten. You'll understand that, I'm sure.' "'Perfectly. Of course, if Sally were to say she knew somebody she would like a deal better, there's no reason why she shouldn't. I mean, I couldn't complain.' "'Yes, yes, I see. You'd exonerate her. Good boy, very proper.' And, indeed, the doctor had felt, as the words passed his lips, that he was rather a horrid liar. But the point didn't matter. Fenwick laughed it off. "'Just you take my advice, and refer the matter to the kitten the last day you're here. Monday, won't it be? And don't think about it.' "'Oh, no! I'm a philosophical sort of chap. I am never in extremes. Good night.' "'I see. Sperat infestis metuit secundis alteram sortem bene preparatum pectus.' "'Horace!' Fenwick ran this through in a breath, and the doctor, a little hazy in school memories of the classics, said, "'What's that?' and began translating it. "'The, the bosom well prepared for either lot fears—' Fenwick caught him up and completed the sentence. "'Fears what is good, and hopes for what is not.' "'Cut away to bed, old chap, and sleep sound.' Then he paused a moment, as he saw the doctor looking a question at him intently, and just about to speak it. He answered it before it came. "'No, no, nothing more. I mean to forget all about it, and take my life as it stands. Bother, Mr. Harrison!' He dropped his voice to say this, then raised it again. "'Don't you fret about me, doctor. Remember, I'm Algernon Fenwick. Good night.' "'Good night.' And then the doctor, with the remains of heart turmoil in him, and a brain reeling more or less, went up into what he conceived to be an empty dark room, and was disconcerted by an ill-used murmur in the darkness, a meek, submissive voice of one accustomed to slights. "'I told her to blow it out and go to bed. It's all quite right, my dear, so do not complain. Now help me with my things, and I will get to bed.' "'My dear mother, I am so sorry. I had no idea you had not gone long ago.' "'My dear, it does not matter in the least now. What is done is done. Be careful with the grease over my work. These candles drop dreadfully unless you hold them exactly upright. And gutter. Now give me your arm, and I will go to bed. I think I shall sleep.' And the worthy woman was really— if her son could only have got his eyes freed from the scales of domestic superstition and seen it, intensely happy and exultant at this fiendish little piece of discomfort-mongering, she had scored, there was no doubt of it, she was even turning it over in her own mind, whether it would not bear repetition at a future time, and quite intended, if so, to enjoy herself over it. Now the doctor was contrite and heavy at heart at his cruel conduct, walking about, just think, and talking over his own affairs, while his self-sacrificing mother was sitting in the dark with the lamp out. To be sure, there
there was no visible reason why she should have had it put out except as a picturesque and imaginative way of rubbing her altruism into its nearest victim unless indeed it was done in order that the darkened window should seem to announce to the returning truant that she had gone to bed and to lull his mind to unconsciousness of the ambush that awaited him anyhow the doctor was so impressed with his own delinquency that he felt it would be impossible the lamp having been put out to take his mother into his confidence about his conversation with fenwick which he certainly would have done late as the hour was if it had been left in so he said good-night and carried the chaos of his emotions away to bed with him and lay awake with them till cock-crow as fenwick walked back home timing his pace by his expectation of his cigar's duration he wondered whether perhaps he had not been a little rash he felt obliged to go back on interviews with sally in which the doctor had been spoken of he recalled for his justification one in particular the family conclave at krakatoa villa had recurred to a remark of rosalind's about the drawback to vereker's practice of his bachelorhood he was then as it were brought up for a second reading and new clauses added to him containing schedules of possible wives fenwick had noticed then that sally's assent to the insertion of any candidate's name turned on two points one the lady's consent being taken for granted the other that every young single female human creature known by name or describable by language was actually out of the question or inadmissible in its answer she rejected almost all applicants for the post of a doctor's wife without examining their claims on the ground of moral or physical defect as for instance you never would go and tie up poor prosy to a wife that golloped sylvia peplow indeed interrogated about the nature of golloping sally could go no nearer than that miss peplow looked as if she couldn't help it and her sister was worse she was perfectly pecky and shut up with a click and as for the large miss baker why you knew how large she was and it would be quite ridiculous besides her stupidity the only candidates that got the least consideration owed their success to their names or expectations caroline smith had or would have some time a thousand a year but she squinted still she might be thought over mrs polycitus biggs's cousin isabella would have two thousand when her mother died but the vitality of the latter was indescribable besides she was just like her name isabella and did her hair religiously there was chariclea epimenides certainly who had got three thousand and would have six more she might be worth thinking of oh why don't you have him yourself sarah fenwick had asked at this point rosalind had just left the room to speak to anne but he didn't want sarah to be obliged to answer so he went on why are all these young ladies incomes exactly in round thousands to which sally had replied they always are when you haven't got em but had fallen into contemplation and presently said out of the blue because i'm an unsettled sort of party a vagrant i shouldn't do for a g p s wife thank you jeremiah i should like to live in a caravan and go about the country and wood fires out of doors was it fenwick wondered the gypsies they had seen to-day that had made her think of this and then he recalled how he afterwards heard the kitten singing to herself the old ballad 
what care i for my goose feather bed what care i for my money and hearing her so sing had somehow imputed to the parade of bravado in the swing of its rhythm a something that might have belonged to a touched chord like enough a mistake of his said reason but for all that the reminiscence played its part in soothing fenwick's misgivings of his own rashness the kitten's all right he said to himself and if she doesn't want master conrad the sooner he knows it the better but he had little doubt of the course things would take as he stopped to look at that venturesome star that seemed to be going altogether too near the moon for safety in a few moments he turned again towards home and then his mind must needs go off to the thing of all others he wished not to think of himself he had come to see this much clearly that until the veil floated away from between him and his past and left the whole atmosphere transparent there could be no certainty that a recrudescence of that past would not be fatal to his wife's happiness and inevitably therefore to his own having once formulated the idea that for the future he was to be one person and harrison another he found its entertainment in practice easier than he had anticipated he had only to say to himself that it was for her sake that he did it and he did not find it altogether impossible to dismiss his own identity from the phantasmagoria that kept on coming back and back before his mind and to assign the whole drama to another person to whom he allowed the name of harrison all the easier from his knowledge that it had never really been his own very much the easier too no doubt from the sense that the function of memory was still diseased imperfect untrustworthy how could it be otherwise when he still was unable to force it back beyond a certain limit it was mainly a vision of america and previous to that a mystery of interminable avenues of trees and an inexplicable horror of a struggle with death there he always lost himself in the hinterland of this there was that vision of a wedding somewhere and then bewilderment because the image of his living wife the very soul of the world he now dwelt in the woman whose daughter had grown into his heart as his own yes not only the image but the very name of her had come in and supplanted that of the forgotten wife on that forgotten day so much so that more than once in striving to follow the clue given by that railway carriage his mind had involuntarily called the warm living thing that came into his arms from it rosy in the face of that what was the worth of anything he should recollect now that he should not discard it as a mere phantasm for her sake how almost easy to say to himself that was harrison and then to add whoever he was and dismiss him do you you who read find this so very difficult to understand can you recall no like imperfect memory of your own that multiplied a hundredfold would supply an analogy a standpoint to look into fenwick's disordered mind from after his delirious collision with his first vigorous revival of the past he was beginning to settle down to face it helped by the talisman of his love for rosalind whom it was his first duty to shield from whatever it should prove to hold of possible injury to her that happy hour of the dying sunset in the shorn cornfields with her and sally and the sky above and the sea beyond had gone far to soothe the perturbation of the night 
and his talk of the morning with this young man he had just left had helped him strongly, for he knew in his heart he could safely go to him again if he could not bear his own silence, could trust him with whatever he could tell at all to any one. Could he not, when he was actually ready to trust him with Sally? So though he was far from feeling at rest, a working equilibrium was in sight, he could acquiesce in what came back to him as it came, need never struggle to hasten or retard it. Little things would float into his mind, like house-flies into the ray from a shutter-crack in a darkened room, and float away again uncaptured, or whiz and burr round and against each other as the flies do, and then decide, as the flies do, that neither concerns the other, and each may go his way. But he was nowise bound to catch these things on the wing, or persuade them to live in peace with one another. If they came, they came, and if they went, they went. Such a one caught his thoughts and held them for a moment, as, satisfied that astronomy would see to that star, he turned to go straight home to Lobjoit's. That would just last out the cigar. But what was it now? What was the fly that flew into his sun-ray this time, that it should make him remember a line of Horace, to be so packed with it, and to know what it meant, too. But this fact, that he could not tell how he came to know its meaning, showed him how decisively the barrier line across the memory of his boyhood was drawn, or, it might be, his early manhood. He could not remember, properly speaking, the whole of his life in the States, but he could remember telling a man, one larpent, a man with a club foot, at Ontario, that he had been there over fifteen years. This man has nothing to do with the story, but he happens to serve as an illustration of the disjointed way in which small details would tell out clear against a background of confusion. Why, Fenwick could remember his face plainly, how close-shaven he was, and black over the razor-land, how his dentist had inserted an artificial tooth that didn't match, and shone out white, but as to the fifteen years he had spent in the States, that he had told Mr. Larpent of, they grew dimmer and dimmer as he tried to carry his recollection further back. Beyond them, or rather longer ago than they, properly speaking, came that endless, intolerable labyrinth of trees, and then earlier still, that railway carriage. It was getting clearer, but the worst of it was that the clearer it got, the clearer grew the rosy that came out of it. As long as that went on, there was nothing of it all he could place faith in. He had been told that no man could be convinced by his own reason of his own hallucination. He would supply a case to the contrary. It would amuse him one day, if ever he came to know that girl of the railway carriage was dead, to tell Rosalind all his experiences, and how bravely he fought against what he knew to be delusion. But he must make an effort against this sort of thing. Here was he, who had just made up his mind, so he phrased it, to remain himself and refuse to be Harrison. No sooner was he left alone for a few minutes than he must needs be raking up the past. And that, too, because of a line of Horace, sound in itself, but quite cut asunder from its origin, the book he read it in or the voice he heard read it. What did that line matter? Leave it for Mr. Harrison in that state of pre-existence as well make a point of recalling the provenance of any little thing that had happened in his present life. Well, for instance, Mary and the fat boy in Pickwick. Rosalind had read him that aloud, he knew, but he couldn't say when. Was he going to worry himself to recall that which could do him no harm to know? 
Surely not. And if so, why strive to bring back things better forgotten? It is useless to endeavour to make the state of Fenwick's mind, at this point of the imperfect revival of memory, appear other than incredible. A person who has had the painful experience of forgetting his own name in a dream would perhaps understand it best, or, without going so far, can no help be got towards it from our frequent certainties about some phrase, for instance, that we think we cannot possibly forget, about some date we believe no human power will ever obliterate, and in five minutes gone, utterly gone. Truly there is no evidence but a man's own word for what he does or does not, can or cannot, recollect. I say, Rosie, when was it you read to me about Mary and the fat boy in Pickwick? Fenwick, having suggested a doubt to himself about his power to recall what he supposed to have happened recently, had, of course, set about doing it directly. His question was asked of his wife as he came into her bedroom on his return. He mounted the stairs, singing to himself, Que nous mangerons marotte bec à bec et toi et moi, till he came in to where Rosalind was sitting reading, with her wonderful hair combed free, probably by Sally for a treat. Then he asked his question rather suddenly, and made her start. "'I was in the middle of my book, and you made me jump.' He gave her a kiss for apology. "'What's the question? When did I read to you about Mary and the fat boy?' "'I couldn't say. I feel as if I had, though.' "'Was it out in the garden at Kay Villa? It wasn't here.' He usually called Krakatoa Kay for working purposes. "'No, it certainly wasn't here. It must have been at home.' "'Only I can't recollect when. Ask Sally.' "'The kitten wasn't there.' "'She would know, though. She always knows. She's not asleep yet. Sally Kin?' The young person is on the other side of a mere wooden partition, congenial to the architecture of lobjoints, and her reply conveys the idea of a speaker in bed, who hasn't moved to answer. "'What? Be quick. I'm going to sleep.' "'I'm so sorry, Chick. When was it I read to this man?' "'Mary and the fat boy in Pickwick.' "'How should I know? Not when I was there.' "'All right, Sarah.' Thus Fenwick, to whom Sarah responds, "'Good night, Jeremiah. Go to bed, and don't keep decent Christian people awake at this hour of night. Take Mother's book away and cut it.' Rosalind closes her book and says, "'I don't know, darling, if Sally doesn't. Why do you want to know?' "'Couldn't say. It crossed my mind.' I know the kitten wasn't there, though. Good night, love. Oh, yes, I shall sleep to-night. Ta-ta, Sarah. Pleasant dreams. But he had not reached the door, when the voice of Sarah came again, with the implication of a mouth that had come out into the open. Stop, Jeremiah, it said. It wasn't at Kay Villa. Why not, Chick? Because Pickwick's lost. It was lent to those impossible people at Turnham Green, and they stole it, I know they did, name like Marleybone. The Halliburtons? Why, that's ever so long ago. Thus Rosalind. Of course it is. It's been gone ages. I'm going to sleep. Good night. And Jeremiah said good night once more, and departed. Sally didn't go straight to sleep, but she made a start on her way there. It was not a vigorous start, for she had hardly begun upon it when she desisted and sat up in bed and listened. "'What's that, mother? Nothing wrong, is there?' "'No, darling child, what should be wrong? Go to sleep.' "'I thought I heard you gasp, or, or snuffle, or sigh, or 
sob or click in your throat, that's all. Sure you didn't? Quite sure. Now do be a reasonable kitten and go to sleep. I shall be in bed in half a second. And Sally subsides, but first makes a stipulation. You will sleep in your hair, mother darling, won't you? Or at least do it up and not that hateful nightcap. But though Rosalind felt conscientiously able to disclaim any of the sounds Sally had described, something audible had occurred in her breathing. Sally's first word had gone nearest, but it was hardly a full-grown gasp. Her husband's question about Pickwick had scarcely taken her attention off an exciting story climax, and she really did want to know why the Archbishop turned pale as death when the Countess kissed him. Jerry was looking well and cheerful again, and there was nothing to connect his inquiry with any reminiscence of B.C. So as soon as he had gone she reopened her book, not without a mental allusion to a dog in Proverbs, and went on where she had left off. The writer had not known how to manage his archbishop and countess, and the story went flat and slushy like an ill-whipped sabayoni. She put the book aside and wondered whether Pickwick really had been alienated by the impossible Halliburtons sat thinking, but only of the thing of now, nothing of buried records. So she sat, it might be for two minutes. Then quite suddenly she had bitten her lips and her brows had wrinkled, and her eyes had locked to a fixed look that would stay till she had thought this out, so her face said, and the stillness of her hand. For she had suddenly remembered when and where it was she had read to that man about Mary and the fat boy, it was in the garden of her mother's twenty-two years ago. She remembered it well now, and quite suddenly. She could remember how Jerry, young man-wise, had tried to utilise Thackeray to show his greater knowledge of the world, had flaunted Piccadilly and Pall Mall before the dazzled eyes of an astonished suburban. She could remember how she read it aloud to him, because when he read over her shoulder she always turned the page before he was ready and his decision that Dickens's characters were never gentlemen, and her saying perhaps that was why he was so amusing. And then how he got the book from her, and went on reading while she went away for her lawn tennis shoes, and when she came back found he had only two more pages to read, and then he would come and play. But it spoke well for her husband's chances of a quiet time to-night, that he should hold this memory in his mind, and yet be secure against a complete resurrection of the past. Nothing else might grow from it. He evidently thought the reading had been at Shepherd's Bush. He would hardly have said, the kitten wasn't there, unless his ideas had been glued to that spot. But then—and Rosalind's mind swam to think of it—how very decisively the kitten was not there in that other garden two-and-twenty years ago. It was at that moment the gasp, or sigh, or sob, or whatever it was, awoke Sally. Her mother had been strong against the mere memory of the happy hour of thoughtless long ago, but then this that was to come, this thing the time was thoughtless of, was it not enough to force a gasp from self-control itself, a cry from any creature claiming to be human? The kitten wasn't there. No, truly. She was not. End of chapter 38